0: Let us pray together. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. We didn't read the whole thing this morning, just uh, the summary, but I preached on it a couple weeks ago. And I pointed out then that this seems like a really odd way to begin a book to us. Really odd way to begin a book, not just the uh, book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, but really as a way to begin the entire New Testament. Uh, Why would you start with a genealogy? It's not very attention-grabbing, it would seem. But actually, to Matthew and to his original audience, it made perfect sense If Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the one God promised to send to redeem Israel, we have to know his pedigree and his credentials. We have to know how he fits into and how he arises from this ongoing story of Israel's history. But this is what's interesting. When we look closely at the genealogy, what do we find? Again, we saw this a couple weeks ago. One thing we find is a bunch of sinners, murderers, prostitutes, adulterers, idolaters. But that's because as Matthew goes on to tell us a few verses later, Jesus is given the name Jesus because He has come to save His people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means, Savior. He came to save Sinners. Jesus is not only friend of sinners. We see that in the gospel. He's also family to sinners. His family is full of sinners as well. He's not just a friend of sinners, he's family to sinners. And that's good news. That's good news for us because all of us are sinners as well. We need a friend. As, like, as we have in Jesus. We need a family member like Jesus who can come and rescue us. This is really what Matthew is showing us in the genealogy uh, in the opening chapter of his Gospel. The Son has become our brother in order to bring us back to the Father. The eternal Son of God became our brother in human flesh in order to bring us back, to restore us to fellowship with the Father. The genealogy shows Jesus entered our earthly family so we can enter his heavenly family. He's been grafted into our human family tree, the family tree of Israel, so he can be our tree of life. Before Jesus came, what was the state of humanity? What shape are we in? The tree of humanity had died and it was rotting and then Jesus arrived and brought us back to life, and now causes us to bear fruit. And this really is what Christmas is all about. Again, Matthew talks about this in chapter 1. It's all about Emmanuel, God with us, God coming to be with us, God coming near to us, indeed as near as it is possible to get by becoming one of us. God coming God coming to wear our humanity, to share our nature, to live and die as one of us. Christmas is all about the incarnation. And that is because the incarnation is the foundation of this whole story of salvation. The whole story of salvation rests upon this foundation of the incarnation. We must understand Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And everything Jesus does, especially his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, only has value if this is true. All those things only have value if he is indeed the Word made flesh, the eternal Son in human form, if he is the God-man. And that's really what we celebrate during this time of year. This is really what we are celebrating at Christmas. The mystery of God in the flesh. The Lord in the manger. The King of all coming to the lowest of places. We're celebrating the arrival of God in history and in humanity. Christmas is all about Christology. It's all about the person of Christ. But the gospel accounts of Christ's birth also give us all kinds of indications, not only as to who the person of Christ is, but as to what the work of Christ will accomplish. Because really his birth and everything that surrounds his birth sets the trajectory of his life. There are all kinds of hints and clues in the accounts of his birth as to what he came to do. And you see this in Matthew chapter 1, you see it in the genealogy. We need to see this if we really want to understand what Jesus came to do. Verse 17 of Matthew 1, this is really Matthew's summary of the genealogy. Uh, He shows us the structure of the genealogy, and he puts it this way. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to the Christ. Obviously, Matthew here has got a thing for the number 14. Uh, and anytime Scripture gives us numbers like this, especially when they are repeated, Scripture invites us to play around with those numbers a bit and see what we can do with them. Because numbers have meaning. They are symbolic. They are a language in themselves. The Bible has a numerology, a theology of numbers. Uh, sometimes maybe this gets a little too weird, too far out there. Uh, so we want to avoid that. But there really is something to this. There really is meaning in these numbers. Um, we all know how Roman numerals work, right? Uh, you learn Roman numerals growing up. Really, Roman numerals are just letters that have been assigned a numerical value. A lot of ancient languages worked that way. Hebrew worked that way. Their letters did double duty as numbers as well. So every letter had a numerical value. And, of course, that means that every word in Hebrew had a numerical value as well. Well, this is what's interesting. David's name is obviously at the center of Matthew's summary of the genealogy. The numerical value of David's name in Hebrew is 14. Now further, there are three blocks of 14 here. Well, so you add those up. I don't want to turn this sermon into a math class, but uh, let's, let's think this through for just a minute. Three blocks of 14 here. That's 42 generations in all. Interestingly, the word generation appears 42 times in Matthew's gospel. Further, the number 42 itself carries significance throughout scripture. For example, 42 months. 42 months is important several places in scripture. And 42 months is three and a half years. The perfect number seven broken in half. And what's interesting is... Three and a half years or 42 months, those are numbers associated with a period of suffering, a period of trial and tribulation elsewhere in scripture in passages like Daniel 9 and Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. 42 is also six sevens, right? Six times seven is 42. So 42 is six sevens. So after 42, what comes next? It's the beginning of the seventh seven which tells you where this genealogy is going. If there have been six sevens of generations, what's coming next? Israel is waiting for the seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, what in the Old Testament law was called the Jubilee. That's what Israel is waiting for. Jesus will bring in that promised rest, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Jubilee, the new creation. But there's something else here, and this is what I really want us to focus on. Let's focus in on that last block of 14. 14 generations from the exile to the Christ. Some translations call it the deportation, but I like that word exile, so I'm going to use that. Fourteen generations from the exile to the Christ. This is so so important because this is one way of looking at the whole story of the Bible. You know, the Advent and Christmas cycle in the calendar teaches us to look at the whole of the Bible in terms of promise and fulfillment. Promises made, promises kept. We learn to read the Bible that way. Well, here Matthew's giving us another way of looking at the whole Bible. It is exile and Exodus. It is the story of exile. And Exodus, there and back again, being sent out, coming back in. It's the story of exile and Exodus. And so really, you could say, this is the hinge on which everything turns. This is a pattern that pervades the whole of Scripture. If you really want to understand this book, if you really want to understand the Bible, you have to grasp what Matthew indicates here and the way it helps unlock what the whole Bible is about. From the exile to the Christ was 14 generations. What does that mean? What is the condition of Israel then before Jesus arrives on the scene of history? It means Israel was still in exile up to the time of Christ. We didn't sing it this morning, but think about that hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's opening line, which describes Israel mourning in lonely exile until the Son of God appeared. That's just what Matthew says here. Israel's mourning in a state of exile, in lonely exile, until when? Until the Son of God appear. That's what Matthew says here. Israel is in exile until the Christ. Now, what is the exile? Let's unpack this a little bit. What does it mean for Israel to be in exile? Well, the exile was punishment for Israel's sin. Uh, Israel was uh, sent away from the promised land, carried out of the promised land, and into slavery. Just as Adam was exiled from Eden because of his sin, so Israel would be exiled from the promised land because of her sin. It's kind of replaying what happens in Genesis 3. Israel becomes the focal point. Israel is a new Adam, of sorts, And so now, because Israel has fallen, Israel is exiled from the promised land, even as Adam was exiled from the Garden of Eden. Now, the prophets, God sent Israel, many prophets, who warned Israel and Judah of coming exile long before it happened. They had plenty of warnings. God was very patient with them. These prophets came and said, Israel, and then Judah would be humiliated These prophets came and told Judah that the temple and the holy city would be destroyed. The nation would be enslaved just like they had been under Pharaoh. They would lose their land. They would lose their freedom. They would experience the curse. Exile was a kind of death. Exile would be a kind of death for the nation of Judah. In other words, the exile would reverse all that God had done for Israel. They would lose all of the blessings that God had granted to his people Judah. Uh, The exile would reverse all of that. It would reverse all God had done for them. Uh, Remember how God brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm under the leadership of Moses? Remember how he led them in a conquest of the promised land under Joshua and then led them in the building of the temple under Solomon? God had done all these things for them. He had stacked up blessing on top of blessing for Judah But the exile would reverse all of that. It would be the undoing of all God did for them. It would be the exodus and the conquest in reverse. It would be the building of the temple in reverse as the temple would be destroyed. It would be the desecration of Judah, the death of Judah. And the prophets make this clear again and again and again. Judah broke God's covenant. God's going to break Judah. That's how it works. God threatened Judah with exile for a long, long time. And then finally, God's patience ran out and the nation was taken away into slavery in Babylon. But here's what we also need to see. Those same prophets who announced the exile, those same prophets who warned and threatened of exile, also promised a new exodus on the other side of exile. The prophets promised a second exodus, an exodus that would be so grand, so glorious, so great that they would forget all about the first exodus under Moses. If exile was death, exodus would be resurrection. If exile was curse, exodus would be blessing. The new exodus would mean a return from exile, a deliverance from the curse. It would mean restoration to the land with a new temple, a new city, a new wall, even a new creation. It means a new glory would be revealed in and to the people. It means sins would be forgiven. God would blot out their transgressions. He would forget all about their sins. As far as the east is from the west, he would separate them from their sins. God would comfort his people. In the midst of their distress, He would grant them rest and peace. He would give them joy. He would grant them victory over their enemies. He would defeat the gods of the nations. He would bring in this shalom. That's a great word to summarize all that the prophets talked about when they described this new exodus. The blind would see. The the lame would leap with joy. God would spread a feast for them. A glorious feast. Death even would be defeated. Isaiah 43 is a good example of this return from exile kind of prophecy. Isaiah 43 is one of many, in fact, almost all of Isaiah 40 through 66. It's filled with return from exile prophecies, prophecies of the new exodus. So Isaiah 43, I picked it out because it's a good example of a return from exile or new exodus prophecy. Consider a few of the details there. Verse 16, God says, and He's speaking now really to the exiles, He says He will make a way through the sea. Well, that sounds like the first Exodus, right? Where God led the people out of Egypt by parting the waters of the Red Sea. God says He will make a way through the sea. It will be like another Red Sea crossing. There will be a baptism. Uh, There will be this glorious deliverance that God will work for them. Verse 17, their enemies, like the chariot and horse of Pharaoh, will be cast away and defeated. Verse 18, the prophet tells them to forget all about the old exodus because God is doing a new thing that is so much greater. Verse 19, he's making a way through the wilderness for them. There'll be another wilderness wandering, but it won't be like the earlier wilderness wandering after the first exodus. This time the people will be faithful. This time God will be with them in a greater way. And so on. And yes, Isaiah does point out that they are still sinners, but he promises their sins will be blotted out. Their transgressions will be forgiven. Isaiah is describing the features of the new exodus. He is telling these people who will be carried away into exile, yes, you will be punished for your sins, but God will also restore you. You'll be sent away, but God will also bring you back. You'll be exiled, but then you'll be exodus. That's the pattern. Now, this is the interesting thing, and this is really the twist. To grasp the the big picture of the Bible, I think you really have to see this. When Judah was taken away into exile, the prophet Jeremiah told them their exile in Babylon would last 70 years. Years. And we find out in Chronicles, this is because of the number of Sabbath years that they had missed, that they had skipped over, they had not kept the Sabbath law. So the Exodus, the exile would last 70 years. Jeremiah 25 says this. Jeremiah 29 says this. The people of Judah would be in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And when those 70 years were up, the people did indeed return from exile. They went back to their land. They rebuilt the temple and the city. Uh, Not only did they have a rebuilt temple uh, and and city, uh, they had a restored and renewed priesthood. And there are books in the Old Testament that that go into great detail uh, about this, this return from exile, this restoration of the people to their land, and the rebuilding of the temple and the wall and the city and the renewed priesthood. But here's the thing. It was nothing like what the prophets had promised Nothing like what the prophets had promised actually took place. It was not glorious in the way the prophets had described. In fact, when the temple was rebuilt, the old guys who had lived through the whole exile, who could remember the splendor of Solomon's temple before it was destroyed, when they saw the newly built temple, they wept because it was pathetic by comparison. So the return from exile after 70 years was real. Israel's spiritual situation and spiritual condition really was different, and yet somehow it was not all that the prophets said it would be. In so many ways, it fell short of that prophetic expectation, the shalom, the glory, the victory, the liberty. Those things didn't come to pass the way the prophets had described. Indeed, in some way, Judah's exile continued even after they were back in the land. In fact, one thing we know, when they were back in the land, they were still under foreign domination, under the oversight of a foreign power. Nehemiah acknowledges this situation in his book, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30. They're back in the land, but Nehemiah says, we are still exiles Even in the land, God gave our fathers to enjoy. Yes, Nehemiah says we're back in the land. God made good on the promise in that way. But we're still slaves. It's like we're still in exile in some way. And so you've got a paradox now. Is the exile over or is it not? Is the exile over or does it continue? Well, it's really both. The exile is over, and yet it remains in some way. It's almost like Israel, in this period of history, is under house arrest. Not exactly in prison, enslaved any longer, but not exactly free either. They're kind of living this in-between. In one sense, exile has ended, in another sense, the exile is continued. But here really is the question. How do we put together what Jeremiah says about exile with what Matthew says about exile? How do we put together what Jeremiah says about the length of exile with what Matthew says about the length of exile? Jeremiah said the exile in Babylon would be 70 years. For Jeremiah, the exile is 70 years. But Matthew says it's 14 generations. Now, that's a pretty big difference. 70 years versus 14 generations. That's a big difference. How do you reconcile that? How do you make that fit together? Well, let's think about it this way. How long is 14 generations? How long of a period is that? A generation in the Bible is usually 40 years. Again, I don't want to turn this into a math class, but do the math. 14 generations times 40 years is 560 years that Matthew says the exile lasts. Jeremiah said the exile would last 70 years. Matthew says it actually lasted 560 years. Again, how do we reconcile this? How do we put together put this together? Well, let's think about the difference there. 70 years, 560 years. What's the difference between those two figures? takes 70 years away from 560. The difference is 490 years. So for Matthew, the exile is 490 years than what Jeremiah said it would be. This is where it gets really interesting. Uh, One of the exiles who was deported from Judah to Babylon uh, is a prophet named Daniel. And of course, you know Daniel from his book, uh, he served in several different pagan empires and uh, always seemed to rise to the top. But in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel realizes the 70 years of Jerusalem's desolation, the 70 years Jeremiah talked about, are almost over. But he also realizes the people are still in sin. The Jews have not really repented of their idolatries. Uh, the Babylonian exile has not led them to full repentance. And so in Daniel 9, Daniel begins to pray, and he begins to confess his own sins and the sins of his nation. And as he is praying, the angel Gabriel appears to him with a message. Now, of course, we know Gabriel, perhaps we're more familiar with Gabriel's role in the New Testament in announcing the birth of Jesus. But there's a reason why Gabriel shows up to Daniel and then shows up to Mary. So that's a connection uh, between those things. But uh, as Daniel is praying, confessing sins, Gabriel appears to him and gives Daniel a message, a vision from God. And he tells Daniel 70 weeks or 77s are determined for the people and the holy city. 70 times 7. What is 70 times 7? 490 years. 490 years. In other words, Gabriel tells Daniel the exile is going to be lengthened by another 490 years. There's your 490 years, the 490 missing years between Jeremiah and Matthew and what they say about the length of exile. You see how scripture fits together here? It's a jigsaw puzzle of sorts. And all the pieces snap together perfectly when you read it carefully. 490 years, the exile will be lengthened. The exile is not just the 70 years Jeremiah talked about. There'll be another 490 years. That's 560 years. That's 14 generations. 70 times 7. Remember in Matthew 18 when Jesus said to forgive your brother 70 times 7 times? Where did Jesus come up with that number, 70 times 7? Well, that ties back to Daniel 9 as well. Because Daniel, in this vision that he's given, uh, he goes on to find that full forgiveness will be made after 70 times 7 years. That's when the full forgiveness will happen, when sins will be covered, when atonement will be made, when their transgressions will be blotted out. That's Daniel's vision. The exile happened at least in part because the people had refused to practice the Sabbath system of forgiving debts and freeing slaves and granting rest every seven years. When the seventy sevens are complete, God will give all those things to the people. He'll give them rest. He'll cancel debts. He'll set the slaves free. And it's interesting, everybody knew this and everybody knew that Daniel had had prophesied this lengthening of the exile. And so by the time you get down to what we call the first century AD, everybody seems to know the 490 years are just about to come to an end. The 77s are almost over. In fact, this is why the people we meet at the beginning of Matthew and Luke are clearly expecting something to happen. They're expecting God to do something momentous right at this moment in history because they know the 490 years are about up. This is why there were so many false messiahs who appeared right about this time of history. Because they knew the 490 years of lengthened exile were coming to an end. They knew it was time for the new exodus. Time for forgiveness to be accomplished. Time for debts to be canceled. Time for the slaves to be free. Time for the exiles to be exodus. It was 14 generations from the exile to the Christ. From the exile to the new exodus. Israel mourned in lonely exile until when? Until the Son of God appear. See, what is Advent about? Advent, really, you can think of it this way. It's God's promise to end the exile with a new and greater exodus. What is Christmas all about? It is the fulfillment of that promise in Christ who comes as the new Moses To bring about a new deliverance, a new and greater exodus. The exodus that the prophets promised. The exodus that the prophets had described in so much detail, in such glorious language. The birth of Jesus is an exodus story. In fact, the whole life of Jesus is an exodus story. His life story is dominated by exodus themes. What did Jesus come to do? to free us from exile, to accomplish a new exodus, to resurrect a dead people, a dead nation, the dead nation of Israel. He came to blot out transgressions. He came to build a new temple, the, the temple of His church. We are the people of the new exodus. We are the people who once were in exile, if not in Israel, if not in Judah, then in Adam. Adam. We were in exile. But now in Christ, we have experienced our exodus. We have been returned and restored. We've been brought home again. This is our family story. This is our identity, our heritage. This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is simply the new exodus. The new exodus Christ has brought about. Think of some ways exodus themes are found in the accounts of Christ's birth. And then into his ministry. It's interesting, you know, many of the names, many of the key names are the same. When you look at the Old Testament, the original Exodus... And then you look at the Gospel accounts. You've got many of the same names popping up. You've got Joseph in Genesis and Exodus. You know, eventually you have a, a, a Pharaoh who does not remember Joseph. Well, of course, you've got a Joseph in the Gospels as well. You've got a Miriam in Exodus and a Mary in the Gospels. You've got an Elisheba in Exodus and an Elizabeth in Luke. It's the same name. You've got a Joshua who succeeds Moses. And then you've got Jesus whose name is Joshua. Jesus is just the Greek equivalent of the name Joshua. Character names repeat. And we're supposed to see that and make the links. In Exodus, the baby boys in Israel are threatened by Pharaoh and one child, Moses, escapes. In the Gospels, the baby boys in Bethlehem are threatened by Pharaoh who is, by Herod who is a new Pharaoh. Herod's like another Pharaoh there threatening the baby boys in Israel. But you've got this child, this one child, Jesus, who escapes. In Exodus, the Shekinah glory leads the Israelites to the promised land. In Matthew, the Shekinah glory in the form of a star leads the wise men to Jesus. In Exodus, the glory cloud overshadows Israel. So in the Gospels, the Spirit, the the glory cloud of the Spirit overshadows Mary. In Exodus, the departure from Egypt leads to the building of the tabernacle so God can dwell in their midst. In John 1, we're told the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true tabernacle, the true dwelling of God with us. And of course, the church is also His tabernacle or His temple that He is building. The words arrival means the tabernacle is now here. And as the church, we're being built up as living stones into a house for God, a tabernacle or a temple for God to dwell in. In Exodus, the angel of the Lord prepares the way. In the Gospels, John the Baptist prepares the way. In Exodus, they came out with plunder from the Egyptians. In Matthew chapter two, Jesus receives plunder again from Gentiles, plunder from the Gentile Wise men. There are all kinds of parallels, all kinds of links between Israel and Jesus, between the old Exodus and the new. Israel crosses the Red Sea, which is described elsewhere in scripture as a baptism because the glory cloud above them poured out water upon them as they crossed through the the, the path that was opened up by the parting of the waters. Jesus likewise has his baptism in the Jordan, a water event. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, facing one temptation, one test after another. Jesus goes into into the wilderness for 40 days, again, facing a series of tests and temptations. Israel receives the law at Mount Sinai. Jesus goes up on a mountain to preach what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, a new law for the people of the New Exodus. God fed the Israelites miraculously in the wilderness with bread from heaven. Jesus in John 6 says, I am the true manna, the true bread that has come down from heaven for the life of the world. Throughout the Gospels, and this is especially seen in Matthew's Gospel, but it's really there in all of them, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' ministry tracks with the history of Israel. As if to communicate to us, everything Israel did, everything Israel went through is now being relived and fulfilled in Jesus. But there is a difference. Whereas Israel failed again and again and again, Jesus is going to succeed. Where the Israelites failed, Jesus will remain faithful. He relives Israel's history, but He does so faithfully at every point. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with a small group of disciples, they're given a glimpse of His coming glory. Moses and Elijah are also present And Luke 9 tells us Jesus began to speak with them, with Moses and Elijah in the presence of Peter, James, and John, about the exodus. That's the word that is used, about the exodus he would soon accomplish. What is this exodus? It's talking about his cross. How will the exodus be accomplished through his death on the cross? Through his cross, we escape from the Pharaoh of sin and death. Through the cross, we're set free, no longer slaves to sin. Through the cross, Jesus restores us. He brings us into a new creation flowing with milk and honey. He brings us into a life of communion with him, a life of freedom. Through the cross, He cancels our debts and He blots out our transgressions. He brings us that promised Sabbath rest. But you know what Jesus had to do to accomplish this exodus for us? How did Jesus accomplish this exodus for us? By being exiled Himself. Because in His death on the cross, that's what happens. Jesus undergoes the curse of exile. The ultimate curse of exile is death. Jesus is crucified outside the city. He's exiled from the holy city. Not only that, but in some way, He's exiled from the presence of His Father, from the communion of His Father. As He dies on the cross, He cries out in the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you exiled me? He undergoes the curse of exile that we might experience the joy and the bliss of exodus. He undergoes the curse of exile so we can enjoy the blessings of the promised new Exodus. Israel mourned in lonely exile until the Son of God appeared. But now that the Son of God has appeared, what do we do? We no longer mourn in lonely exile. We rejoice as the community of the new Exodus. The dead have been made alive. The sinful have been forgiven. The exiled have been Exodus. Those with great debts have had them all canceled. And it's interesting how Jesus gives to his church two sacraments, both of which point us to the Exodus. Baptism is like our Red Sea crossing out of Egypt and into the promised land. The Eucharist is our Passover feast, a a celebration of our deliverance through the Lamb of God who has taken our sins away as we feast upon the true manna that has come down from heaven. See, the Exodus is our family story. A lot of us have been or will be getting together with family uh, over this holiday season. You know how when families get together, they'll so often share stories, maybe even tell the same old stories again and again. You know, how mom and dad met or or, or great granddad's role in the D-Day invasion. You know, families will share stories that give them their identity because that's our heritage. Our heritage is passed along in those stories, the stories we share. Well, as the people of God, as the family of God, what is our story? It's the story of exile and exodus. It's this exodus story in Christ. This is what defines us as God's people. Now, one last thing here. I want you to understand, just because the exile has happened does not mean things will always be easy for us. Remember what happens after the Exodus. There's a time of wandering in the wilderness where they face all kinds of tests and trials. Uh, after the exodus, they have the, that leads to the conquest. They have to conquer the land, a promise. God's promised them to it, but they've, they've still got to go in and fight for it. And, and there are walled cities in the land, and there are giants in the land who have to be conquered. That's what the first exodus looked like. What about that semi-exodus, that, that, that quasi-return from exodus that took place? after 70 years in Babylon. Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe that, what happened in the days when the people returned from exile to the land. It wasn't the fully promised exodus, uh, but it did reveal the pattern of exodus. They come back with plunder from Babylon that they'll use to build the temple, just like they came back with plunder from the Egyptians. You know, the goal was to build a house for God. But again, there are all kinds of opponents, all kinds of obstacles in their way. Ezra and Nehemiah talk about this all the obstacles, all the opposition that stood in the way of their mission as the Exodus people. Just because there was some kind of Exodus there doesn't mean it was easy. They had to fight, they had to work. There were all kinds of temptations. There were obstacles standing in the way of the fulfillment of their mission. And it is the same with us. Yes, we are the people of the new Exodus. But that does not mean it's going to be easy for us. We will find all kinds of opposition, all kinds of obstacles that stand in the way of fulfilling the mission that God has given to us, of conquering the land, conquering the world with the gospel, discipling the nations, building a house for God, building a a temple, enlarging the church to the glory of God, this house for God to dwell in. We find all kinds of opposition to that. Sometimes that opposition comes from within the church, unfaithfulness within the church, even as it happen in Israel. There's sometimes unfaithfulness in Israel. Sometimes that opposition comes from outside of the church. And I think we're seeing that in our own day, aren't we? All kinds of opposition to the gospel and to the truth of God's word in the world around us. Indeed, we may very well be heading for a time of what's been called soft totalitarianism in which the state, but perhaps especially corporations, find ways to sanction And punish, or sometimes they say cancel those who deviate from their progressive ideology. We're entering an age that has uh, been called uh, the surveillance economy, where the government and again, especially corporations have incredibly detailed knowledge about our lives and it's virtually impossible to opt out of this system. And our beliefs as Christians can very easily be used against us. Rod Dreyer, who has tracked all of this closely, says this about it and, and the temptation it presents to us. Soft totalitarianism exploits decadent modern man's preference for personal pleasure over principles including political liberties. The public will support or at least not oppose the coming soft totalitarianism not because it fears the imposition of cruel punishments but because it will be more or less satisfied by hedonistic comforts. The great temptation of our age will be to live for comfort, to live for our own comfort, our own pleasure, instead of the comfort we find in the Gospel, the comfort we sing about when we sing Isaiah 40, the comfort that God gives us in Christ, to live for the wrong kind of comfort, the wrong kind of joy. As the people of the Exodus, we must remember our joy and peace are not tied to always getting our way politically or living materially comfortable lives or being healthy or prosperous. Our hopes do not rest on democratic politics or modern medicine. No, our hope lies in Christ and in His reign over all. That King born in a manger 2,000 years ago, in Him we put our hope. All of our hopes converge upon him. He is the desire of the nations, the one who has come to bring salvation. Oh, sure, we have a vision for society that derives from the Bible that we'd like to see implemented. But even if we don't live to see that, even if very little of our vision for, for society, for our nation is realized, we can live with joy and peace and hope knowing our greatest enemies have been defeated. Our greatest enemies have been trampled under the feet of Christ. Death has been defeated. Sin has been slaughtered. Satan has been cast down. And so no matter how dark or dangerous any day might get, we live in the light of Christ, the light of the Lamb, who gave Himself for us in love on the cross, who has brought about this great promised Exodus for us. We pin all our hopes on him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.